Hi everyone, welcome back to Live Well UCLA. I had a restful break where I got to spend time with family and friends and reflect on last year and set intentions for the new year. I hope you all got to do the same. I'm really excited about today's episode where you will finish listening with special actions and resources to improve the health of the world around you and inside you. To teach us this and to help kick off the new year, we invited Dr. James Bassett. James is a beloved professor and advisor of many students at UCLA, from film majors to biology students, that have the pleasure of taking his food studies and community health courses. A graduate of UCLA himself, James also holds a PhD in organizational psychology and international business from Ohio State University. He's not only a recipient of the Pritzker Fellowship for Environment and Sustainability Education, but he's a master gardener, which you'll learn all about today. To top it all off, he is certified in French regional cuisine by the Cordon Bleu in Paris. James's passion for the food system started at an early age and has clearly translated into many forms. While I could chat with James about the ins and outs of his many fascinating roles, We wanted to narrow it on a practice he has seen growing, quite literally, in urban agriculture, gardening, and culinary spaces. It's a practice called seed saving. James gives us the rundown of seed saving, how to acquire heirloom seeds like that of the traditional Japanese shiso leaf or the modern honey nut squash. This episode will leave you hungry, inspired, and wanting to get your hands dirty literally. Enjoy. Well, uh, welcome, Dr. James Bassett. What is so incredible about you? You're so multi-talented. And so we feel really lucky to be able to have you on our podcast today. So before we dive into this conversation, I'd love our listeners to learn a bit about who you are and what led you to teach at UCLA and be a master gardener. And as we just alluded to, all these other hats that you have. Sure. I, you know, my, my parents met at UCLA and I did my undergraduate work at UCLA. So, so uh, uh, Bruin blood runs deep in my veins, to be sure. As far as being a master gardener, is concerned in the work that I do in, in agriculture. I come from two food families. My father grew up on a on a farm in Idaho. And although we, you know, my brother and I grew up here in um, West Los Angeles, my father wanted to be sure that we understood where, where food came from. So we always had an extensive garden in the backyard where we grew lots of vegetables. And I think we had something like seven or eight uh, different fruit trees in our backyard, a little, a little, a little orchard, and lots of potatoes, of course, because, you know, he grew up in, in Idaho. When my father turned 18, um, he joined the United States Army and served during World War II, where he worked as a as a an army cook. I still have his his cookbook, so if any of your listeners um, need a recipe for 250 servings of macaroni and cheese, I, I can hook you up. I really can. My grandfather on my my mother's side joined his brother-in-law and started a food uh, import company that was called the Pacific Trading Company. If you've ever enjoyed Kikkoman soy sauce, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My grandfather introduced Kikkoman soy sauce to the United States. Mm-hmm. The Pacific Food, uh, the Pacific Trading Company, rather, morphed over the years and became something that is today known as the Japan Food Company. So, in addition to my, you know, my father's sort of hands-on kind of muddy boots approach to food, I also grew up with some working understanding of the economics uh, and sort of the, you know, the the business side of food. And between those two things, I had a real interest in 
in the food system from, you know, from a very, very early age. After I graduated from, from graduate school, um, I served on the board of directors of a nonprofit organization called Food from the Hood. In a very long story short, they were a, a youth entrepreneurship sort of training program where um, young men and women from um, Crenshaw High School owned and operated a salad dressing company that sold their product in, I think, 23 states around the country and about 2,000 grocery stores in Southern California with, with all the, the profits going to college scholarships for the, the kids. I mean, this was a program where, you know, our high school where, where maybe, you know, half of the students weren't graduating and, and all of the students that went through our program not only graduated from high school, but, but went on to college. And we also had a working garden as a part of the, the program. And one day a master gardener came over to help us sort of organize our garden and, you know, and help us with, with production. And that really struck a chord with me, just that sort of, you know, knowledge base and that sort of practical application of that, of that knowledge. So when the opportunity presented itself to become a master gardener my, myself, I jumped at it. Maybe some people might not know what a master gardener is and what it entails. Yeah, master gardeners come under the umbrella of what's called cooperative extension. And it's really all part of the land-grant university system that was started by Abraham Lincoln. Here in, in California, UC Davis is sort of our, our, our home base. And you'll typically find in essentially every state in the union, a master gardener program um, under that umbrella. And they typically work county by county. So there's, you know, Los Angeles County and there's, you know, Orange County and so forth that have their own, you know, master gardener groups. Um, and these are volunteers who've gone some through some some extensive training and have agreed to volunteer again for, you know, dozens of hours a year going out into the community, working with, you know, various groups to teach, uh, basically, and to pass on the sort of fundamental gardening skills. It makes a lot of sense then in a lot of ways what you teach, which is quite imaginative, but also quite practical and also quite extensive in the food world. And what struck me was how you discuss and integrate social, cultural, environmental perspective into your teaching. And then you also have this hands-on component. One thing you mentioned that really was I think something our listeners might not know that much about, or I certainly didn't, which is the seed saving subject. And I would love you to give us a little bit more description of what that means and what kind of practice is that? I mean, depending on who you talk to, agriculture, you know, goes back at least 10,000 years, possibly much more than that. And fundamental sort of a cornerstone to agricultural practice is, is the saving of seeds. And in some ways, I could argue that one of our greatest in inheritances as the human race is the is the seeds that have been saved and that have passed on and that have evolved over time. I mean, every everybody eats and it's the seeds that allow us to do that. Curiously, there are so many varieties of foods that we know and that we uh, enjoy today that that are the result of generations of seed saving. I mean, if you if you like Brussels sprouts and you should, uh, as well as, you know, broccoli and so forth. I mean, these really all derived from something that looks very much like today's kale. And it was people selecting varieties that, you know, had had good flavor or that, um, you know, produced well and that seemed to do, you know, well in their environments that that ultimately became all these varieties of fruits and vegetables that we enjoy today. What I think is critical about seeds is their diversity. And it's 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 actually a challenge that we are are, are faced with uh, today. You know, if you go to your local grocery store, or your local garden store, you'll see a relatively narrow variety of the fruits and vegetables that 
perhaps historically have been uh, available to us. A handful of years ago, National Geographic magazine did a whole year-long series on the food system. And there's a brilliant graphic that you can still find online that shows the, the diversity of seeds that a farmer may have found 100 years ago compared to you know, what's available to them today. And although there's some debate about, about the data, the, the overall sense is that we have a fewer varieties of various popular fruits and vegetables today than we may have in the past. And that's a result of you know, the kind of seed saving that, that we do. I mean, there used to be more than 3,000 varieties of apples that were commercially available here in the United States. And I would challenge you to go to a grocery store today and find you know, more than a dozen different varieties. It's that diversity that not only can speak to, you know, different tastes and different interests and, and you know, foods that derive from different, you know, cultural traditions, but that also focus on food value. Today, we select seeds commercially, sometimes more for their yield um, and their disease resistance. I mean, understandably, you know, if you're a farmer, you, of course, want to be able to produce a lot of product to, to sell. Um, and you want that product to, you know, survive in your fields so it can get, it can get to market. But we don't necessarily save seeds primarily for flavor or for food value. And if food, first and foremost, is going to nourish us, then food that tastes good and food that packs a lot of nutrient density, I think, is a, a priority that we we need to look at. The funny thing is that almost, you know, everybody can save seeds. It's not exactly rocket science. You can go online and, you know, find videos or pick up books where books are sold um, that will teach you how to save different kinds of seeds. And, and it's it's technically not that difficult to do. There's a bit of an art and science to it. Gary Nabin, who's a, a professor at the University of, of Arizona, tells a story of a, a conversation he had with a, a Native American woman from the American Southwest. And she was teaching him about traditional seed saving. And, you know, you'd look for things that, you know, that come from plants that taste good or that seem to be very healthy and so on. But she said, but you don't want to be too picky. And he kind of had to pause and say, wait a minute, isn't that the whole point of seed saving that you're being very, very selective? And she said, yeah, but, but, you know, it's all a gift from nature. And sometimes, you know, you may not appreciate or like, or, or, or even understand something that a, a particular plant um, brings to the table, literally, but there may be some value in it that you're, that you're overlooking. So when you're saving seeds, you know, throw throw a little extra in, you know, that you may not be really sort of consciously selecting for, you know, that 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 bitter flavor that you might not particularly like might actually be signaling the presence of some, you know, phytonutrient that might even have, you know, uh, medicinal uh, properties. And, you know, when we were talking about sort of culturally appropriate food as well, you know, if you, you know, want West African bambara beans, or if you want, you know, Japanese shiso leaves, or if you want, you know, Caribbean pigeon peas, it's going to be really hard to find that in your local grocery store, but you can grow them yourself. And they'll be, you know, as fresh, as flavorful um, as, as, as you can possibly have when they're, you know, grown right there with your own hands. It's a skill that I would love to see more of us learn. Um, it's something that I, I talk to my students about. You know, the more of us that are out there saving seeds and saving a variety of seeds, I think the more uh, crop diversity that we have and you know in the world of sustainability um you know genetic diversity is sort of the key to uh, uh resilience so that gets into the follow-up question that i'd love you to reflect on is we've got the seed but isn't a lot of what comes reflective of the soil that seed is growing in and people use this word ecosystem for business or some other kind of uh 
settings and scenarios is it's quite popular this uh, saying ecosystem but when we talk about it related to growing our food the ecosystem is quite complex so if you think about it it's not only that the soil itself is reliant on how we take care of it but it's also how the rains and the runoffs and all these other parts of our climate that can impact the soil in a way but the sun right everything Absolutely. Soil is so much more than just something for plants to stand in. I graduated from Ohio State University. It was one of the original you know, land-grant universities. And uh, when you go to Ohio State, you, you learn very quickly that there's a, a, an enormous distinction between dirt and soil. You know, just about anything can pass through dirt. I mean, the stuff you track into your house, uh, you know, the dust on your bookshelves, cat litter. I mean, it's all dirt. Soil is a very particular uh, sort of combination of, of air and water and mineral content and, and organic matter. And it's it's that cocktail, it's that it's that mix that allows plants to grow and and to be healthy. Donald Davis, who's a, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, um, published a study I think back in two thousand and four, where he looked at the at the nutrient density of crops that are are grown today and those of of fifty years ago, and he found what he referred to as as reliable reductions. I think in the the nutrient density of a lot of those crops. I mean, put another way, there's there's less food in our food today. And he wrote in his article that that may be, um, as you say, a product of the sorts of crops that we're selecting for and the kind of plants that we're breeding, you know, the ones that are high yielding and, you know, are disease resistant without necessarily focusing on the the nutrient density of the food that those those crops uh, produce. Um, it's the life in the soil that, you know, to put it simply, is what puts, you know, the life in the crop and perhaps is what, you know, puts life in the people that, uh, you know, that eat those crops. Well, so if the listeners were hoping to gain a skill of seed saving, where would they start? I love the internet, I got to tell you. Um, there are some <laughs> great YouTubers out there that have done a brilliant job of, of illustrating really up close and in good detail, you know, how you save seeds from different plants. Um, I mean, you can simply search for, you know, seed-saving tomato or seed-saving green beans, and, and you'll probably find something good. Um, there are also several books out there. Or I got to say, a little plug for the Master Gardeners, get in contact with your local Master Gardeners and say that, you know, you'd love to have a workshop in seed-saving and we will show up. I'd love to know how do you like get hold of these heirloom seeds and where do we where do we start? Yeah, th there's a lot of sources for good quality heirloom seeds, but, but but sometimes you have to go looking for them. In my perfect world, we would have more seed libraries. Um, seed libraries typically are uh, almost like social gatherings, um, you know, where people will come together and do seed swaps. Or sometimes there's a core group of people that will grow out various varieties of seeds and literally lend them out to people who can grow them maybe in their backyards or in a community garden, save some of the seeds from their crop, and then bring them back to the mm. seed library for for the next person. Um, here in Los Angeles, there's something called the Seed uh, Library of Los Angeles that uh, I believe still meets up at the at the, at the Learning Garden at uh, uh, Venice High School in in West Los Angeles, and they have just an enormous library of seeds that are you know free to borrow, and you know there's always the hope that you're going to do well with them and then be able to bring some back for the next guy. There there are some cases, and I, I honestly don't know of any uh, here in Los Angeles. There may be where you know, actual libraries, the, the sort that you get books from, have started um, seed libraries. So in addition to their, their book collections, they'll have 
seed collections and you can check wow. them out just like a book. And, you know, as I say, take them home, grow them out, save some seeds and return them back to the library. And I'm, I'm a big fan of piggybacking on, on existing resources. And, you know, if you think all across the United States, all across the country, there are local libraries and county libraries that, that already have, you know, physical location that are, are really good at storing and archiving things um, that have a good following from the, the local community. There are some commercial sources um, for for some of these seeds, and I mean, let me say up front that 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 I applaud any retailer that makes seeds available to people. I, I you know that 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 helps all of us participate, you know, in the adventure that that, that is gardening. But a lot of retailers, I, I think, are you know find themselves a little bit limited to carrying some of the most popular varieties, and those are often the things that you find in grocery stores. You know, the things that people would recognize. So yeah, I want to grow bell peppers. I want to grow zucchini, you know, that kind of a thing. But if you want to grow something a little bit different, something maybe a little bit more rare or something that is is maybe more culturally specific, you may not find them um, at your your local retailer. I mean, you know, simply because it's it's like top 40 music. If you're sort of compelled to sell the most popular things, you know, you're you're not going to, you know, be selling rare varieties. But again, going back to the internet, there are some retailers out there on the internet that sell um, really interesting and rare, you know, heirloom varieties. I don't work for any of them, and I'm not on commission or anything like that. But I am a big fan of of several because of the unusual varieties that they sell. I think, for example, of um, Baker Creek. Huge fan of Baker Creek. I mean, one they have a beautiful catalog. You know, you can make an evening of flipping through its pages. But they specialize in heirloom varieties and of things that sometimes are difficult, if not if not impossible to find it at, you know, some of the larger retailers. And one of the things I think is fun is that, you know, in their catalog, they'll also include, you know, the backstory of those seeds, you know, that, you know, what family back in the 1800s originally developed the variety and so forth, or what village and what country did these, you know, were these discovered in and, you know, and so forth. So you really know that the story of the food that you're, that you're eating. Uh, Native Seed Search, um, which is a nonprofit seed group that was uh, uh, started in partnership with Gary Nabin from the University of uh, Arizona, focuses primarily on varieties, Native American varieties in the Southwest, which for those of us who are in, in arid environments um, are typically varieties that have been developed over generations to do well in dry climates. Uh, you know, so if we're worried about droughts and not using too much water in our gardens and things like that, uh, there's a lot to be said for, um, you know, these drought tolerant varieties that Native Seeds Search offers. There's a company called um, True Love Seeds that uh, has a specialty in seeds of the African diaspora. So, you know, if you want seeds from West Africa, from the Caribbean, from the uh, American South, from Brazil, they're they're a great resource for for some of these. And again, you know, these may be varieties that, you know, that you wouldn't find in your local garden store. How do we increase the demand for foods coming from these more um, diverse seeds. First of all, in terms of sort of you know maybe creating a little bit more of a demand for these seeds, one I think is just uh, developing some awareness. If you you know go through a typical sort of you know seed catalog something like that, I mean you'll you'll recognize a lot of the things that you see in your grocery store, and and it's you know you, one could be easily forgiven for believing that that's sort of what's out there, you know, and what's available. Um, as I say, you know, if you want to find something a little bit more more interesting. Um, you really have to go looking. You really have to dig. One of the the projects I'm I'm working with students at UCLA to develop is growing out some of these varieties and 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 
giving them out to school gardens and community gardens and so forth. I mean, just to sort of whet people's appetites, no pun intended, to to get people excited about you know what what can be found, and then you know sharing the resources of you know where these things can be uh, you know can be located for for purchase or or spreading the idea of seed libraries so that you know if people start growing these things out, they can share them with each other, you know, with their friends and neighbors and and so forth. Dan Barber is a chef from uh, the Blue Hill Restaurant in uh, New York. And he, being a chef, you know, has has a real commitment and real passion for for taste, for flavor. And uh, he's always in search of more more flavorful fruits and vegetables. And in his book, The Third Plate, he talks about speaking to, you know, plant breeders and various universities and so forth and asking them if they couldn't breed for flavor. And he talks about how they'll kind of chuckle a little bit and say, I, I suppose, I mean, we can breed for virtually anything. It's just that Nobody's ever asked us to, you know, it's always again about, you know, yield and and and, and disease resistance. He started an interesting seed company, uh, and again, don't work for them, not on commission, called Row 7 Seeds. Um, you can even find them online. And his philosophy is that, I mean, he's, he's a fan of heirlooms. And, and so Dan Barber's been working with some of these plant breeders to develop what you could essentially call new heirlooms where they are uh, selecting for flavor and they're selected for nutrition as well. There's, there's one particular variety that, that they've developed called the, uh, the, the honey nut squash. It's, it's a, a cousin to the, the, the butternut squash, except it's about the size of your fist. And it has something like four or five times the flavor and nutrition of the, you know, traditional squash varieties. Um, you know, you can really take one of these things, slice it in half, stick it in your toaster oven, you know, bake it for about 20 minutes and eat it with a spoon. It's almost like dessert. Um, mm. such good, such good stuff. Um, me hungry. <laughs> so, yeah, me too. Um, there's a variety called the, uh, uh, upstate abundance potato. Speaking of potatoes, uh, that's, that would be so flavorful that you wouldn't have to put anything on it. Um, mm. it seems that they pulled it off. Um, I have a few growing in my backyard right now. I'm looking forward to the harvest. So, um, are these topics that you discuss in your courses at UCLA? Is this the kind of conversation you have with the students? They absolutely are. You know, so many of the students that, that that come to my classes in the food studies program are are hungry for knowledge about the food system. I mean, they really want to understand, you know, where it all comes from and how it works and so forth. But at the same time, they want that practical knowledge. You know, they want that that ability to apply what they're learning you know, to their own choices. And for a lot of them, you know, folks in, you know, community health, interested in maybe going into nutrition and so forth, uh, even people who are going into a field of medicine really want to be good advocates for, for healthful food. Uh, so many students really want to contribute to a, a, a better food system going forward. Mm-hmm. And I know from my own experience, and I'm sure yours, the students teach us so much. And what have you learned from your students? So much. Uh, and one of the exciting things about, um, again, the food studies students is they come from so many different backgrounds I and mean, they come from, you know, fields uh, just, you know, across campus. You know, I, I have, you know, biology students and I have filmmakers, you know, all, all, all in the same class. And they come from, you know, various parts of the country and, and internationally as well. And they are inspiringly proactive. You know, they, 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 they really want to take what they're learning and go out in the world and 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 do something with it. I had a, a guest speaker, um, Janet Valenzuela, who's today with the uh, Los Angeles Food Policy Council, 
And she talked about a, a program that she helped develop in the East Los Angeles called um, La Cosecha Colectiva, or the Collective Harvest. And, you know, this is an area that some people might describe as, as a food desert, where it is prohibitively challenging or difficult to get your hands on, on fresh fruits and vegetables. So they started growing their own. And, you know, if you had an avocado tree in your backyard or, or a little patch of, of soil where you grow tomato plants and so forth, you would grow what you could and then come together and swap crops with mm-hmm. your, 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 your neighbors. And one of my students was so inspired by her story that she got in contact with, with Janet, asked exactly how they pulled it off and how they connected people together. And she returned to her community uh, in uh, Riverside here in California and started um, a sister program of the La Cosecha Colectiva. You know, here in the United States, you know, to explain to somebody how not only do we not grow our own food or cook our own food, but sometimes we we can't be bothered to get out of our cars to eat our own food would be a mystery. And, And it is curious how... You know that that's the food that has become the the easiest um, to get your hands on, and although it's affordable, which is which is uh, uh, you know certainly important, uh, critical really, you know it may be affordable in the short term. You know when you think of the cost of personal health and public health, the importance of your children's health, you know there's got to be better solutions. You know it's one of the reasons I'm I'm a big proponent for 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 urban agriculture. I mean trying to grow more fresh fruits and vegetables locally, whether it's in, you know, your backyard or it's smaller commercial um, operations that can sell, you know, affordable, fresh, nutrient-dense food locally, I think, you know, may be part of the way to address the, the food swamps going going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of conversation about trying to pursue the, the heirloom leads me to reflect on our last episode. We were talking about the perfection in the food world And one thing that comes to mind is the ugly fruit campaign and actually ends up, you know, selling fruit that that is not the perfect Mm. fruit for a grocery store. But in the end, they most likely have more nutrients because they've had to fight off the nick in their skin, you know, and so forth. Mm. And I wanted to understand, you know, how we celebrate the progress and not ruminate over always finding the right or the perfect solution. On the one hand, I was speaking to, you know, things like the, the, the wonky vegetables as they're called in, in Great Britain. For some reason, and it's not exactly a new thing, but for some reason, we become very fixated on the sort of the, the superficial appearance of fruits and vegetables, um, which, you know, an, an appearance doesn't always sort of, you know, signal, you know, the nutrient density or the, the, the quality of the food that we're that we're eating, you know, as a result, one I, a lot of food goes to waste. So, you know, we talk about food waste here in the United States, and part of that is you know, things that never leave the farm because you know the carrot's too short or it's bent in a weird direction, or you know, so, again, something very superficial that has little to do with the the actual you know nutritional value of those crops. I mean, depending on who you ask, sometimes is you hear numbers as high as you know 30 or 40% of crops that may never even leave the field just for sort of superficial reasons i think for you know environmental reasons and for sort of economic reasons and to support uh you know the agricultural community looking a little deeper into what we're we're, we're eating and not being so concerned about how it, how it looks um would be a a very helpful shift i think in our 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 food related cultural values in fact i think it was voltaire who said that um you know the the perfect is the enemy of the good uh and this may be very much a a a case of of that 
D'Artagnan Scorza teaches at UCLA, but he was also the uh, executive director of the Social Justice Learning Institute in Inglewood. He was also on our podcast. And Oh, excellent. I, I, I like him so much. He talked to me once about being a little bit careful, interestingly, you know, if you're talking about sort of the virtues of organic or the virtues of local and so forth and getting too worried about whether or not your fruits and vegetables are, you know, are they fresh? Are they frozen? Are they canned? You know, and so forth. Um, because if you're not careful, you wind up overwhelming your audience. And, and and you know, he's talked about people who've kind of thrown their hands up and they're going, wow, this is just too much. Maybe I should just stop eating fruits and vegetables altogether, which is about the last takeaway, you know, you want people to get from a discussion about, you know, food and and and, and healthful food um, at, at that. You know, I believe he will quote, um, you know, Maya Angelou, who said, you know, do the best you can. And, you know, when you know better, do better. But I think it's important to eat the best you can, you know, what's available to you, what you can afford and so forth. And, you know, when the opportunity presents itself, you know, step up your game a little bit, you know, when, 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 and if you can. Well, that actually is a great segue to the question we're asking all of our podcast guests. What does it mean to you to live well? Oh, to live well. You yeah, my my shortest answer for that, and it's, it's not one that I made up, but, but my shortest answer to that would be to live your life so that when your kids are trying to define hero, they think of you. But my my longer answer perhaps is to aspire for 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 balance. I think if there's anything that comes close perhaps to a, a universal truth, it's that the you know the middle path is almost always the best road to take. And when we think of you know mind and body and spirit, I sometimes think of those things as like the the three legs of a of, of a three legged stool, and they all have to be equal and they all have to be strong. Otherwise, the whole thing tips over. Um, and if you are resting on the seat of that three-legged stool, then you need to attend to the strength of, of each, you know, mind, body, and spirit, and in a balanced sort of a way. I think it's Ken Robinson who said that, you know, as academics, and I'll only speak for myself, that sometimes we think of our bodies as just something to carry um, our, our our minds from one meeting to the next. And we can live very much up in our our, our heads. And, you know, I, I I share that with my students sometimes because, you know, they you know, are in a place where they're starting to make some of those adult choices about how they want to live their lives going forward. And although, you know, in a university class, we, you know, we often, uh, you know, like to live in our heads, you know, quite a little bit. You know, I think it's equally important, you know, that they attend to their their physical and mental well-being just as much as to their sort of, you know, intellectual well, well-being. It's one of the things I, I, I love about the Healthy Campus Initiative with the University of California is that we really are looking to not just strike a balance, but to create an environment for the students where, as you point out, you know, that, that the easiest choice, you know, is the, is the mm -hmm. best, best choice. That's that balanced lifestyle. And I think maybe that's what it means to live well. Mm, that's really lovely. James, what a, a treat. Dr. James Bassett, what a treat for you to be here as a guest of ours and really um, grateful to you for all you do at UCLA, but in Los Angeles and also around the world. And we're really blessed to have you as part of our community. Well, thank, thank you, Wendy, Dr. Slesser. Um, great pleasure to be here and to be able to talk with you and, 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 and to your audience. Thank you so much for inviting me. This discussion with James grounded me. I was reminded of the value of eating seasonally and the power of sharing and reaping seeds with your community. I was inspired to hear the stories of folks like Dan Barber or Janet Valenzuela, who combine the worlds of flavor, 
community, advocacy, and gardening to create delicious food and result in meaningful change. I must also say, I was quite impressed to hear that James's grandfather brought the Kikoman soy sauce to the U.S. Having you all as part of this podcast is key to making it happen, so follow us at Healthy UCLA on Instagram or visit our website to suggest guests or feedback. Oh, and of course, subscribe if you haven't already. We'll talk to you soon. This episode has been brought to you by the Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA. 